We're going to be reading from Matthew 5, uh, specifically verses 17 through 32. Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, for any reason except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Please be seated. Good morning. If you were able to see, and even yet this morning, but perhaps middle of the week, saw the text that we happened to be in this morning. 
Maybe for some of you, you're thinking, ugh, talking about adultery and divorce. Those sound like uh, downer subjects. I want to encourage you, just right out of the gate here. These words that we're going to be speaking to this morning, in my Bible, they're red letters. Jesus is speaking. When Jesus speaks, we ought to be listening. This morning, I call your attention to hear what Jesus has to say from his word. With that in mind, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this word that you have given to us. This word that is profitable for doctrine and for rebuke and for correction and for instruction and in righteousness. Lord, thank you for your precious word. This word that we can stand upon. This word that we can carry with us and hide in our heart that we might not sin against you. Oh, Father, may that be our cry that we might not sin against you. I pray, Father, you would teach us this morning from your word that your Holy Spirit would be our great teacher. I pray we would listen with attentive ears. You would open us to hear, Lord, what it is you desire for us to hear today. May we come away today having heard your word and then leaving today, may we then be doers of this word. May we in obedience, walk this week differently because of something we've seen here this morning in your word. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity. And Lord, I pray these would be your words. Help me, Lord, to speak your words this morning. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, as we begin this morning, I'm going to have you turn as a starting point to the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible. Young people, you know that first book of the Bible, right? What is it? Genesis. Thank you. Thank you, Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, many of us probably don't even need to have the Bible open to, 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 to say this particular verse. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From day one's work of let there be light to day seven's rest. God created the heavens and the earth. The dividing of the firmament of waters. The separating of water and land. Providing grass and herbs and fruit trees. The sun, the moon, the stars. Living creatures on land. In the water, in the skies. And then you arrive at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. If you fast forward to Genesis chapter 2, you read these words beginning in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Remember Adam? Remember how he made Adam? Genesis 2 verse 7. Took a little dirt, breathed into him the breath of life. And now we see here in verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made, he built, he fashioned into a woman. Notice what this says here at the end. And he brought her to the man. Do we see that? And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife And they shall become one flesh. One flesh. I'd like you to keep that particular text marked. Keep it handy. I believe that text is foundational to the text we're going to be looking at in Matthew 5, 27, 32. What was God's original intention with marriage? When he brought the woman to the man. Let's not discount what took place there. God took that woman whom he fashioned from Adam's rib. And he brought her to be united with the man. God's intention was that they would become one flesh. You see, his view of the two coming together is seen as one now, having been joined by God himself. And so what we have is somewhere between Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 5, an erosion started to occur, didn't it? You know what erosion is? You ever heard the term? Some of you young people maybe have come across that in some of your science. When something erodes, something that happens over time, right? Sometimes quick, more quickly than, than other situations, depending on what kind of erosion we're talking about. But in the arena in which we're dealing with right here in the scripture, with marriage... I don't think we have to look very far to see that there's been quite an erosion that's taken place. You know, I said somewhere between Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew 5, the erosion began. In fact, if you just take one more chapter after Genesis 2, you start to see where the erosion began. It began in Genesis chapter 3. 
the fall. Sin. See, prior to Genesis 3, things were much different, were they? That the perfection exhibited in the Garden of Eden, it became marred. Not because God changed. You know, David's talking earlier about his unchangeable nature. It, it was marred through one man who brought sin into the world. And this sin brought Death. And ever since that time, death has spread its darkness. But praise be to God and thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? This is not a sad story. We know who wins. So, sins eroding work today. Easily observed around us, is it not? But that eroding work that goes on when we speak of sin, it it pales in, in comparison to the work of grace God accomplished and finished at the cross. Through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the erosion work of sin is damaging. It reaches into all of life, destroying individual lives, marriages, families, workplaces, churches, and yes, even governmental institutions. This is a nationwide problem, is it not? You see, with all the resources and all the materials at the disposal of these United States of America, sin has found its resting place and it continues to feed and feast on the buffet of riches afforded to the country. So what began back in Genesis 3 has continued forward into the year 2012. And in some ways it seems to have accelerated rapidly forward. As you look at Matthew 5, 27 to 32, do you see the text speaking of two arenas where this erosion has been at work? In verses 27, 28, 29, and 30, Jesus addresses adultery. In verses 31 and 32, he speaks of divorce and by implication, marriage. The two subjects are intertwined. And yet I believe Jesus would want us to see the impact of sin in both of these arenas. If I were to put forward the question, I'm sure if we were to take time to give input on this question, how are things today in the arena of marriage? Good? Bad? Indifferent? Depends on who you talk to, huh? Depends on who you listen to. 
You know, suppose we just for a moment remove marriage and speak of premarital sexual behavior among those in our country. Are, are things any better outside the marriage arena? Are they perhaps worse? You see, we live in a world where pornography, for example, it's no longer a shameful thing. It's now a big business. Marriage is no longer accepted as just one man and one woman, but it seems that there's this continual, constant pushing for two men, two women, or any combination of spouses. The, the erosion is happening. It's happening all around. The question being asked today, church, is not, what does God's word have to say about these things? I don't, I don't hear that oftentimes, sadly. That's not the question people are asking today. When erosion does its work in the heart of man, the word of God begins to lose its rightful place. What once held priority, perhaps, no longer does. You see, the resounding noise of the world the clamoring of voices competing for attention. Your heart and your mind are susceptible repositories of such erosion. The things of this world crowd in around the heart. The word gets choked out. Right there, I'm reminded of the, the parable right, that Jesus tells about the seed being sown. And the operations then of man, they reflect the operations of the world, not the word. Some of you are here today. Perhaps you've not been able to define it. Maybe you've had a hard time describing what this looks like in your own life. But is it possible that there is a work of erosion flooding your own heart right now? Are the elements of this life beating against you in such a way that you are eroding deep down. No, no one might be able to see it on the outside. But inside, you know, and only you know, it might not be detectable to the eye, someone watching, someone observing. But perhaps this morning you sit here and you sit in a chair and you know there's something going on inside. There's an erosion of some kind taking place. And you don't like it. You don't know what it is. You can't put your finger on it exactly. But you know something is not right on the inside. I want to encourage you this morning to take heart. Because I believe the word here in Matthew chapter 5. I pray that it will serve as an anchor for your soul. If there be any eroding work going on right now, may the Lord open your eyes to see and your ears to hear these wonderful truths in His Word. Truths that are meant, church, for you to stand upon. Truths that are meant to 
take hold of, truths that are meant to put on this belt of truth, right? Because we are engaged each and every day in a spiritual battle. There is a battle being waged all around us. Look at the text in 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Two things I want to point to here. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. All right, and let's locate them in the text. Kevin spoke last week in 21 through 26. We're going to see six times. 21 and 22. If you see 21, you've heard that it was said. Verse 22, but I say to you. 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Look at 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, verse 32, but I say to you. 33 and 34, 38 and 39, 43 and 44. These are six examples, if you will, that are flowing out of 17 through 20 in particular. And in 20, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to now teach us. I love this. This excites me. It ought to excite you too. Because what he is doing is he's teaching you and me how to live this life. This is what it looks like. We ask the question so often, why? How do we do it? What's it supposed to look like? Jesus is giving us instruction. In these various arenas of life that we live, he's going to show us and he's going to teach us how to do this. What does this look like? What is proper? What is the righteous way of living? How am I to walk righteously? Even in the midst of a culture, in a world that is eroding It's going so far away from what the Word has called me to do. How do I do that? If you notice, today you have heard that it was said in 27, he says, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 31, It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And then on the other side, but I say to you, today, he says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery. And then in 32, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That phrase, but I say to you, that's an important phrase. Grammatically, it's important probably to bring something additional out here. The construction in the Greek is is significant to our understanding, I believe. Ego de lego. Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Ego simply just means I. De is a conjunction, it means but. And lego is a verb, means I say or I speak. So 
what we really have in the Greek at the beginning of this is I, but I say. I, but I say. We don't talk like that, do we? But you see, the Greek construction is such that when there is this construction where the, it's called an emphatic use, emphatic, where, where there is a, an emphasis upon the one speaking. Well, why is that important? Well, first of all, Jesus is speaking. Second of all, in the context, I believe it's important, especially when we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, 28 and 29. You remember these words? And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, Jesus is speaking as the authority. I I say, ah, let's, let's be clear, I am the one speaking, Jesus said. I am the authority. You heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now we need to really listen, don't we? We need to really listen to what he's saying. Jesus is speaking, and he's going to give input into this particular arena. Here we're speaking of adultery. You might recognize verse 27, church, as one of the Ten Commandments. Anybody recognize that? All right. Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. And by the way, just as a side note, last week's teaching referenced the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. I believe there's merit while we're in Exodus 20 to read the 10th commandment as well. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, there's an interesting one in light of our text today. Nor his male servant nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Exodus 20, 17. That's the 10th commandment. You see any connection, perhaps, between the 7th and the 10th commandment? Any connection, perhaps, between the two commandments, 7 and 10, and the words of Jesus in verses 29 and 30, when he refers to the eye and the hand? Keep that in mind. The prevalent teaching of the law pertaining to adultery centered on the act of adultery. Similar to what we found last week on the act of murder. But once again, and Jesus does this throughout the sermon, and I believe not only does Jesus do it throughout the sermon, I believe Jesus does it throughout his life teaching. He's targeting the heart of man. Adultery, according to Jesus, is much more than committing an act. The act stems from the desires of the heart and the mind. The act, according to verse 28, stems to whoever... The word is pos, it's an adjective. Everyone. 
we could say. Everyone, whoever, looks at a woman to lust for her. Now, let's be clear here. Jesus is addressing the man in particular in this section of text. There is no man exempt from these particular words. Nor is there one who has performed flawless in the arena of looking at a woman to lust for her. There is but one. His name is Jesus. The question was posed last week in regard to anger, murder. I wonder how the listener would have received these words of Jesus. If I've looked at a woman to lust for her. Now, Jesus, are you, are you serious about this one? Do you know how difficult this one is in in the midst of the world that I live in, Jesus? Jesus' teaching penetrates the heart. It addresses the thoughts and motives, which oftentimes, do they not, go unchecked and unaccounted for? His teaching is not some other law. <laughs> okay? But it no doubt sounded strange to the listener who, who had been accustomed to simply checking the box of not committing the act of adultery. Looking is not so much the problem as looking to lust for her. What is it to lust? What does the Bible say about such a thing? Well, we need to understand that the word that's used here for lust, epithumia, used three times in the scriptures in a good sense. I'll give you one of those scriptures, Philippians 1, 23, where Paul says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire, there it is, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. All other times in the scripture, it has a negative, evil, wicked connotation. I'd like to give you some scriptures that might be helpful for you to see what the Bible says about these lusts. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. What about Galatians 5, 16 and 24? Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Verse 24. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Turn in your Bibles 
for just a moment to the book of Romans. I'd like to read a few verses from Romans 6. Starting in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, your mortal body. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. You see, Romans 6, he's talking about our union with Christ. And that if we are in Christ, we are now to present our members, hands, eyes, feet, our members as instruments of righteousness. This is key. Your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Here it is. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Obedience from the heart. That's what he's after. Ephesians 2 verse 3. Speaking about who we once were, apart from Christ, sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. First John chapter 2, 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, Church, we need to understand. Here's what the word says about that. It's not of the Father, but is of the world. Oh, and here's a note about the world. Verse 17. The world's passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's the instruction. And in Titus 2, 11 through 13, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, did you notice that the Bible not only rebukes 
but offers correction and instruction in righteousness. If you were listening to those passages that I just read, you heard something about these lusts, how we are to put them off. But in, in all of those, I believe there is a word there about what we're to put on, about what we are to do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, he doesn't just say stop it. But he instructs us in righteousness. This is not just some cold-hearted, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But the Bible instructs us in righteousness. It shows us the right way. It shows us God's way that we might live that we might bear fruit to God. Anyone interested in bearing fruit to God? That's what this shows us. And you know, as yet, as, as wonderful as, as this Bible is, God has is, is even given to us His good spirit who, who guides us, who navigates us, who, who shines a light for us, and He unveils the way of Christ. So if you're here today and you desire to walk the way of Christ, the Spirit of God, coupled with the Word of God, these are your greatest resources in Christ. In Christ. And lest you forget this, as you journey with Christ, the children of God ought to be encouraging one another along the way. Each one keeping in step, walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5. You know, I was reminded about this, encouraging one another, how important the body of Christ is. Last night I was, I was working a game, and, and, and there was a gentleman that was working the game with me. And come to find out, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's been attending a church that uh, I'm familiar with in Indianapolis area, and been attending for, for quite some time. We were able to have a great conversation after the game. We were walking out to our car afterwards. And he mentions, he says, um, he said, he said, Steve, he said, that was, that was, that was refreshing, that was refreshing tonight to be able to pray before the game. Before we walked down the court, I just simply said, hey guys, can we pray before we go out? So we prayed. And so now after the game, he's telling me how refreshing it was that we were able to pray. And I just remember in our conversation, I remember in the moment, the Lord impressing upon me to just encourage him. As a believer in the Lord. I just simply said, hey, next time you have a game, you're in Christ. You initiate the prayer. I said, you know that that I'm a pastor, elder. And you might think that it's easy for me because I'm a pastor, elder, to offer up prayer before a game. Let me tell you something. It's not. Because there are many games where two guys don't know the Lord are working alongside me. And it'd be real easy for me not to open my mouth and say anything. But what happens if you start doing it and another brother who referees... See, it's, it's almost like they're in hiding. I didn't know this guy was in the Lord until we talked. 
That's the idea of encouraging one another. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. And we ought to be relying upon, dependent upon, the children of God to encourage us in living the Christian life. Praise the Lord. There were some good things that happened last night. That was, it, it was a blessing to be a part of that conversation. And I pray the Lord would use that conversation in, in his life and in others. Well, in the text, Jesus, we see the physical act of adultery. We see the inside act of adultery, what Jesus mentions in his heart. Verse 28. And you know, the result of hearing such a teaching got to thinking about how the listener might, might be inclined to respond to what Jesus has to say. And I'm thinking even the listener even yet today. How, how, how do you respond to these words? Perhaps someone might say it's too hard. Too hard. Can't, can't control the desires and passions within me. I'm hearing what you're saying, Jesus, but it's not going to happen. I'm a man. You made me this way. And so what we do is we rationalize it. And in the process of rationalizing it, what we are doing is we are essentially blaming God for creating us this way. Well, that doesn't fly. It doesn't work very well. That's not obedience. Some could hear what he's saying and immediately come out and say, yeah, I'm guilty. No. But since I've already lusted in the manner that you've described, Jesus, I suppose it won't matter a whole lot if I just move forward to the act of. I mean, if you view them as, as one and the same, and I mean, I, I've already committed adultery in my heart, the act of won't cause any additional harm, I suppose. That's wrong logic, church. That's fool, foolishness. That too is disobedience. But perhaps the response to what Jesus says here is, okay, Jesus, how do I live this out? Any help on how I can combat this? And that, church, I believe falls under the category of being submissive to God's righteousness. Not trying to establish your own righteousness, but to submit to God's righteousness. I see what you're saying. Help me, Lord. I need help how to live this. I praise the Lord because verses 29 and 30, help is on the way. If your right eye causes you to sin, the word sin there has in mind to cause one to stumble or to falter. Pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Notice the repetition in these two verses. Do you notice it? I want you to see the repetition. Many of the words are the same in those two verses. The repetition is oftentimes inserted to make a point, right? This is not a typo. 
but an opportunity to impress upon the hearts of the listener some critical truths for understanding the magnitude of what it means to lust, to understand how Jesus thinks about lust and how to combat it in everyday living. Herein lies the challenge for most of us. You see, the intellectual end of things, what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing, what's right, what's wrong, this is oftentimes, I believe, much easier to acknowledge. It's putting the teaching into motion in your life. Putting the teaching into motion in your life. Being a doer and not simply a hearer, deceiving yourself. That was my word to, to my brother last night in the parking lot. Step up and live this out. Live it out. Let's go. So taking what Jesus says here about not looking at a woman, men, to lust for her. See, in, in the Jewish culture, the man was the one who could divorce, who could issue the divorce papers, And the divorce oftentimes came for some form of perceived indecency. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says. And perhaps in light of his predominantly Jewish audience here, this explains why he only addresses the man in Matthew chapter 5. We do see, conversely in Mark's gospel, chapter 10 verse 12, Jesus says, And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What's what's significant to note there is that in light of his Gentile audience, Jesus speaks of the woman divorcing her husband. So we have context, culture, audience. All those things play a big role in what gets spoken, what gets said, or perhaps what doesn't get said. So what is Jesus saying here to the people about adultery? How serious is Jesus about addressing adultery? Let me just give you four words. Two Two of these are the same. Pluck it out. Isn't that a great phrase? It brings a vivid image to mind, doesn't it? Pluck it out. (laughs) Cast it from you. Cut it off. Cast it from you. See, Jesus is helping you live out his teaching. If your eye is causing you to stumble and sin in this way, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now, let's let's pause. What is Jesus saying here? This This is perhaps one of those hard sayings of Jesus. Pluck it out? Jesus. Really? Pluck my right eye out. Here's the problem with that if you take it literally. First of all, it's going to really hurt. Secondly, your left eye is going to have to follow the right eye because it's going to be something that that you're going to be dealing with a lot. Pluck your right eye out. Is he calling for self-mutilate to take out your eyeball? No. I want to make that real clear. Okay? I don't want people coming back next week and you guys come up with a patch over one eye. No. 
So then the follow-up question is, what is he saying? What is he talking about? See, we've got the imperative. Imperative is a command. The imperative nature with which he speaks right here in verses 29 and 30 lends itself to the tone and the tenor of his teaching. If your eye causes you to stumble, then deal with it right now. Go to great lengths to get rid of the issue. In other words, if this is an issue, looking at a woman to love, if this is an issue for you, it's not enough simply to say, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. Jesus' teaching here is pluck it out. Get rid of it. Flee from it. That's Jesus' teaching. Side note. The degree to which Jesus calls his followers to adhere to this instruction. Context is that of adultery. But let's be clear. Adultery is sin. Can we just say that? Adultery is sin. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 29 and 30 on how to deal with adultery is not exclusive to the category of adultery. Let me, let me say this here. Listen. Jesus is teaching on how to deal with adultery. The principle, the principle of what he's teaching applies to sin in general. Let me ask this question. Would Jesus take a lighter approach, for example, if the man cheated on his taxes? Would Jesus take a lighter approach for the man who lied to his neighbor? How about the man who wrongfully handled a business transaction? The principle is to flee from sin, isn't it? Cast it far from you. See, if it's your hand that's causing you to stumble in the context of adultery, take immediate precautions. Don't rationalize. Don't converse about it. Don't be content just doing better this week than you did last week. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Flee from it. And I love the word because it gives us counsel in this particular arena. Genesis chapter 39. You know the story. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The text sets us up for what's going to happen. He was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, remember he's serving Potiphar. So his master is Potiphar and his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, My master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me. I love this line. Nor has he kept back anything from me but you. Why? Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph got it exactly right. If you fast forward a couple verses, look at what Joseph does. She caught him, remember? He comes in the house and she's like hiding. No one else there. And she catches him by his garment. She says, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled outside. He didn't stop to have a conversation with her. He didn't stop to try and rationalize and talk to her about it. 
He left. He fled. Praise the Lord. You know, it reminds me of that urgent counsel that's given by Jesus right here in Matthew 5. 29 and 30. Pluck it out. Cut it off. Cast it from you. You can contrast that in the life of Joseph. Contrast what he did and how he handled that situation with 2 Samuel chapter 11 and David. When, at the time when kings go out for battle, there it is, the context is setting us up again. David was a king. When kings go out for battle, David stays at home. Oh, that's interesting. Well, what happened? Well, he happened, he couldn't sleep. He's up on the roof and he sees a beautiful woman. He saw a beautiful woman. He saw a beautiful woman with his eyes. And he had her brought to him. See, his adultery was coupled with murder, was it not? The two things we've been talking about last week and even yet today. He schemed and he plotted to take her husband's life in the field of battle. The scripture is filled with examples. Helpful examples, both what to do and what not to do. And how to live these principles out that Jesus is speaking of right here in Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to, in this, to just turn with me briefly before we finish up here in, in the last two verses. I believe it is instructive to turn to John chapter 8. An act of adultery had already happened and the religious leaders of the day bring the woman to Jesus. We've got to understand, they're bringing the woman to Jesus. Let's be real clear on the context. They're bringing him to Jesus... Not because they have a genuine question about adultery. They're bringing him to Jesus because they want to trap him. They're testing him. They want to see what he has to say. Pick it up, verse 3. Scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? You can almost imagine how they said that to him. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger. I wish the text would tell us. I'd, I'd always, I'd, I've always wanted to know. I'm curious. It doesn't tell us what he wrote, but as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, you get that? What do you say? What do you say? And they're, they're just like, keep asking. And he's writing on the ground. So when they continued asking, he raised himself up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. 
And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You notice here Jesus' response to what's happened. Jesus does not condemn her, nor does he condone what she did. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know, what's interesting, we know, many of us know that verse, but perhaps we don't know that verse as it sits in the context of John chapter 8. I don't know 100% if that woman was there and heard verse 12. I tend to believe she did. Even if she didn't, those who were with Jesus were able to see the connection between the I, I am, ego a me, I, I am, the emphasis upon who Jesus is. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This woman was not condemned for her actions, but Jesus, nor did he condone her actions. And perhaps in that moment, that woman, the Bible doesn't give us her conclusion to her story, but I would like to think that her life was different as a result of the encounter she had with the light of the world. That because she now met the light of the world, she's not going to content herself no longer. And she's not going to be walking in darkness. But she's now going to walk in the light as Jesus himself is in the light. That's a wonderful passage. By the way, as it pertains to John chapter 8, the Pharisees wanting to see what Jesus was going to do. Because you know the law in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, the punishment for the Adulterer and adulteress was death. Jesus extends love and compassion and calls her to walk in light. So, just as a summary, Jesus points out what his listeners had heard up to this point concerning adultery. What they had heard was, you shall not commit the act of adultery. Jesus then, speaking as the one who had authority, expounds on the subject by pointing toward the heart. If you look at a woman to lust for her, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. You see, his teaching is primarily concerned with heart matters, not simply the act of. And Jesus goes on to teach the people how to live this teaching out, to pluck it out, the eye, right? The eye looking to lust after another woman, or the hand Why the hand? Why does he use the hand? I don't know exactly, but perhaps has the idea of stealing another man's wife. 
If you look finally at 31 and 32. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I hope you're seeing the connection between 27 through 30 and 31 and 32. Where would the people have heard verse 31 before? What would have come to mind perhaps? Well, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24... Deuteronomy chapter 24. I just read the first few verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. By the way, that's really vague. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what that means. And in fact, from all I can understand, it sounds like it was fairly easy um, for a divorce to occur, take place. If he found some uncleanness in her, some indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, a deed of divorce. Puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, so now it's the second time, right? And sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, Then her former husband, first husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination to the Lord. And we'll come back to that here in just a moment. A deed of divorce. It's mentioned here almost in a matter-of-fact way. You know, the the society that we live in, this, this D word, divorce, gets thrown around very casually, as though it's not really that big of a deal. You know, again, in the circle that I run with, uh, off, uh, outside here, um, I know there are some who have experienced and gone through divorce. I've, I've heard, painfully I've heard, someone share that they're happily divorced. And I realize that there are situations that are not pleasant in marriage context. I realize that. The way it gets promoted today, though, the very casual sense of it, everyone does it, right? I mean, everyone, divorce has become almost this normality for many in the world, hopping from one spouse to another taking part in one marriage after another. Men and women searching. Searching. Searching on many occasions for the partner that would just make them happy. Just make them happy. Might just be able to provide for them the most stuff. The partner that drives the nicest car lives in the finest home, has the largest bank account, has the highest title, position in the company, has external beauty, perhaps. The criteria many have for marriage today is a far cry, church, from the counsel of God. 
And therein may be part of the reason for so much discussion on divorce. You know, there came a few questions one day to Jesus. If you turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Pharisees came to him, testing him. Saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Once again, let's understand the context. Just as it was in John chapter 8, it's the same here in Matthew chapter 19. They came presenting these issues, trying to trip him up. Now there comes a time in the Gospels where you see that they just, they just finally give up. Because every time they tried, it always backfired on them. They could never quite trip him up. Jesus always had a word. Or he was always absent of speaking in certain situations. He always had a way. Because you see, Jesus knows the heart of man, doesn't he? Well, here... In this particular text, we see the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, I want to point you to Jesus' response here because it steers us back full circle to where we began. Genesis 1 and 2. Look at his answer, verses 4, 5, and 6. He answered them and said, Have you not read? (laughs) Have you not read? Come on, have you not read? That he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said. This is the Genesis quote. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let not man separate. Question two then comes in verse seven. Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Jesus answers in verses eight and nine. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, ouch, (laughs) because of the hardness of your hearts, Notice the next word, permitted you. See, in the question, it says, why did Moses command? Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Genesis 1 2. And so Jesus says, and I say to you. So he, he talks about what Moses, answering their question about Moses. And now he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. I hope you see the wording here is almost verbatim to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. And I believe that even Paul and his instruction and his teaching echoes that of Jesus and the point Jesus is making about marriage and divorce. 
In Corinthians chapter 7, 10 and 11, Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Here's what he says. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. You know, the what-if scenarios here are, are endless. You know, you've heard them cast out in conversations. Men or women, looking, they're looking for a listening ear is what they're looking for. They want out of the marriage because they're just not happy. Because their spouse is not satisfying them. Because they have financial problems. Because and because and because and because. The list goes on. Jesus says, But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality. The word there for sexual immorality, porneia. It's where I believe in our English we get the word pornography. comes from that. Porneia. Fornication. Unfaithfulness toward your spouse. Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. You see, from the beginning, it was not so. In fact, when I go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, excuse me, 24, in Deuteronomy 24, just for a moment, I'm reminded of a bigger picture here. When we talk about divorce... So this man takes a wife, marries her, and happens she finds no favor. So he gives her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out. She's departed and becomes another man's wife. And verse 3, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out. Or if the latter husband dies, her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I was drawn to that and I was thinking about that. You see here in Deuteronomy 24, it's deemed an abomination. Why is it deemed an abomination for this to occur? What's spoken of in Deuteronomy 24? I believe in large part because it was not so in the beginning. But... According to this law, divorce was also seen as bringing sin upon the land. What if, what if the communities that we lived in, church, saw divorce as affecting not only their own immediate families, but saw the impact and saw what it can do to those around us? Sin does not just affect me. When I make a wrong decision and I sin, it doesn't just affect me. It's going to probably, most likely, affect those who are in close contact, proximity. My wife, my children, those who live around me, those that work with me. And see, that's part of the problem here, is that when this divorce goes on, people are viewing it and thinking about it in in perspective of, 
This is, this is just something I have to deal with. But that's not what I see here in the text. I believe this was, in a real sense, when we look back in Deuteronomy, there was this communal understanding. There was a, 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 a responsibility to those that, that lived around you. You didn't want to do this for the shame it would bring, not only to the Lord as an abomination, but to those around you. Boy, have we lost that one today. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? Why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. Those are the words from Malachi the prophet. Having seen what the word of God says about adultery and about divorce, some might wonder where they stand with the Lord having gone through these particular situations. I'm reminded of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? I'm reminded of Jesus' words to the Pharisees when questioning him about divorce. What God has joined together, let man not separate. For the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of his word, and those around us, for the sake of his name, let's go before the Lord and thank him for his counsel in these arenas of our lives. He's given to us instruction. And while he does put forth concession for divorce to occur, he does put that forth in what he says. Let us not be quick to speak of or move in this direction, for it was not so from the beginning. That too is present. Let us praise the one who ordained and sanctified the marriage institution. Let us see in this union between one man and one woman a bond that knits our hearts together as one flesh. Let's remember that God brought that woman to the man. This was his doing. Providing for the man 
a helpmate suitable to him. I would also call our attention to what the word says, men, about this wife of yours. Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. A good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. I pray that as we read through 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, and 32, that we would come before the Lord, ask of the Lord. Perhaps you've gone through, thinking about 31 and 32, divorce. Does that make you less of a person? No! I want to say that loud and clear. I also want to say, those that you know who are divorced, in our minds, in our hearts, we must not, we must not, we must not, because Jesus did it. Consider them lesser. Put, put all of those people in a bucket. And, no, no. No. We must not. Adultery, what do you do with someone who's gone through adultery? Let's take a page from the lesson of Jesus. What does he do? He doesn't condone the sin. He does extend love and he does extend compassion. He does that. And so must we. And so perhaps... Here we are today, and perhaps the response here from the message is asking of the Lord how to handle, how to deal with my own heart towards someone who's gone through something I've not gone through. I've not walked through divorce. I have not. And I praise the Lord I have not. But I don't walk around, I, do, I dare not walk around being prideful about that. Instead, it's my hope that the Lord would give me grace to be able to deal with and minister to people who have. To be able to lovingly come alongside and encourage and show compassion. Church, what we're talking about here, in many ways, as we blew this out earlier, we, you know, the, the smaller scope was adultery there we were looking at. But the bigger scope is sin, is it not? Is there anyone here without sin? I call your attention this morning to take the very sin to the only one who can cleanse you. And that's Jesus Christ. Let us not for one moment think that there is this bucket of sin that is, that you're, 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 you're removed from that, right? Then Paul saying Corinthians about 
beware. Lest you fall into that temptation as well. Oh, church, let us encourage. Let us support. Let us speak words of life one to another. Let us help each other along this road, these two arenas that Jesus speaks of. May marriage be held up high, lifted high. May we encourage one another in our marriages. May we encourage our young people who are not married to live lives of purity and live lives of holiness. Because that is exactly what God desires as we talk about walking in the way of righteousness. That's what he's called for us to do and to be about. So let us walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, let us together keep in step. And as we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Praise the Lord for his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you are good, and I thank you that your love endures forever. I thank you that you are our strong tower, that we can run to you and be safe. I thank you that you are our refuge. I thank you that you are our rock, that when the storms of this life come beating down upon us, that we have a foundation in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this anchor for our soul. Thank you for the hope that rests within us. Thank you for the good deposit that you've given to us in your Holy Spirit who shines his light of truth upon Jesus and points us to the very things and words of Jesus. Oh, Father, I pray that our lives as a church would be lived with all purity, that we would desire to live holy lives because you, God, are holy. Oh, Lord, I pray that would be our motivation to know that you've called us to be holy because you're holy. We see all the way back in Genesis that you created man in your image. Male and female, you created them. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for instituting marriage, and I pray today, perhaps today, may be a good opportunity, Lord, for husbands and wives in particular to have a conversation in light of the text. For husbands and wives to come together and to be reminded, to be refreshed, to be renewed in this covenant that they've taken before you. Oh, Father, I pray your blessing upon the marriages here. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen these marriages here at Hope in Christ Church. I pray that they would be pictures, Lord, of that, of that Ephesians 5, Christ and, and church. That when the people see any of the marriages here at Hope in Christ in particular, as they go out and about, Lord, I pray they would be able to see a godly marriage. They'd be able to see something different about their marriage. A husband who desires to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and a wife who desires to submit unto her husband as unto the Lord. Oh, Father, these are lost today in so many ways, and I pray that we would just be able to, by your grace, by your good spirit operating within us, to be able to live this out before 
a world that is eroding right in front of us. Thank you, Jesus, for your love toward us and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. May we be reminded of who we once were. And in light of who we once were, may we then be able to come alongside those who also sin. Not to condemn the sin. Not to condone it. Father, I pray that first and foremost they would see our love toward them. Yes, it's sin, but Lord, I pray we would be able to come alongside. They would be able to see that same compassion, that same love that Jesus showed toward that woman in John chapter 8. Oh Lord, help us to be able to do that well as you've called us to do that. I praise you this day for your word and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.